Welcome to Slayer Fest 98. I'm your host, Ian Carlos Crawford, and today I'm joined by my lovely co-host. Oh, I wish I was lovely. It's Anthony Oliveira. I'm wearing sweatpants. It's fine. Don't worry about it. How is everybody? Uh, today we're talking about Bargaining Part 2. It is a David Fury episode, and we have two lovely guests. Uh, the first is the editor of Out and Garage Magazine. Hi, it's Evan Ross Katz. Hey, Evan. Uh, and the second is most recently associate editor at Into and currently unemployed lesbian. Hi, it's Mary Emily O'Hara. <laughs> she made me say that, so it's fine. Don't write letters to me. Um, congratulations on your recent life changes, Mary. How is that going? I am fun employed. And yeah. I'm every minute of it. <laughs> except the part where I don't have an income. But, you know. Well, we thought we would cheer you up by talking about this bright and lighthearted episode about digging out of your own grave and then <laughs> <laughs> uh, bargaining part two. Ian, you want to get us started? Um, well, since we have two first time guests here, Evan, would you like to give us your Buffy origin story? Yeah, I mean, so I think I must have been like five or six years old. What My mom was a huge All My Children fan. And so my mom would be watching All My Children and Sarah Michelle Gellar was Kendall Hart, the iconic Kendall Hart. And so I was a huge Kendall Hart fan. And I remember like when Sarah like won her Emmy, um, Daytime Emmy Award. And so when Buffy first started, it was sort of just, I was a fan of Sarah Michelle Gellar's and wanted to see her cool new show. Evan, I have so many questions that I actually had to bite my tongue when we were talking before the show because I want to ask everything. And the first thing I want to ask is, can you tell me everything about Kendall Hart? Because I know nothing. So, and I want to understand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So Kendall Hart is Erica Kane's daughter. Kendall, in the original version, because Kendall comes back in the later years, not played by Sarah Michelle Gellar. Um, oh. But Kendall was sort of just like the wild, deviant daughter. And this was daytime soap opera in the 90s so it was a sort of the wildness uh was a little bit more untethered so she was just sort of a badass and she would steal people's men and yeah she was just an absolute uh deviant oh was she ever like possessed by a demon or anything did this did this show ever get like because I know days of our lives things got real and then passions things got even realer. I don't know what the like metaphysical stakes yeah. are of all my children. No, I so. would say all my children you could come back from the dead, but it wouldn't be like you were like rising up. It would more be like we thought you were dead and nope, you were alive all along. Uh it didn't really get uh, that like cuckoo the way passions did. My mom watched Young and the Restless and I remember being bummed because that's what I would watch and I was like upset when I learned the other soap operas had supernatural plots and this one did. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Passions was a trip, if you haven't. I mean, Spike is right. It is a great, great show. Um, Mary, what about you? Yeah, what's your Buffy origin? Well, first of all, I want to preface this by saying I'm very disturbed by the fact that Evan was five when Buffy came out. <laughs> because I'm Don't think about it. You will crumble into dust. <laughs> I'm going to be 143 years old yeah. this year. Yeah. And... Um, so for me, my Buffy origin story is actually, uh, God, I, I must have been in my early 20s. No, I was in my teens when, when Buffy was on. But I had just become part of this really cool little punk scene in Chicago called Homocore. Wow. And my friends, my friend Joanna Homocore, that's not her real last name, but it might as well be. Uh -huh. She was one of the people that used to organize these Homocore shows and bring... Um, 
bands like uh, Bikini Kill and Los Crudos and all that kind of stuff to Chicago for these shows and all the like queer punks would go. Um, oh, cool. And I actually, I didn't have a TV because I was like too cool of a punk. Too teenager. homocore for TV. Yeah, but I would go to <laughs> Joanna's house and Joanna and her wife, Caroline, would be watching um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I would just sort of like look over their shoulder and be like, is that two girls making out on TV? Because at the time, <laughs> Buffy, right, Star, yeah. Willow and Tara were literally the only queer people on television. So yeah. it was... It stood out to me, um, and I, I didn't really fully register it because I was, you know, again, I was too cool. But years later, um, I was reintroduced to Buffy by a girlfriend who was totally obsessed with it when it was on, and she was a kid, um, mm-hmm. and she got me into like just watching every episode and making all the references and sort of getting all the allegories and arcs, um, and then. During a bad winter breakup, a couple of years later, I watched the entire series back to back, like just like over the course of like three weeks, just watched every single episode. And that's when it really like gelled, like became part of my like tissues, you know, uh-huh. that that every part of my life had some sort of parallel in the arc of Buffy. <laughs> yes, I've always had that feeling of like. <laughs> Well, been stuck in season six for the last three years. Like oh, that's God. definitely I'm so sorry. <laughs> oh no, now I'm good. Now I'm I mean, it's weird. I'm in I feel like the problem with Buffy is it ended and I had no way to map my life onto it anymore. And like the season eight centaurness no longer fit, so um I couldn't really I couldn't really graph it anymore. Um was Homocore like like queer nation kind of stuff, like activism and like culture pop up stuff and things like that? It wasn't as much activism. Homocore was basically just like a queer punk alternative to the the regular punk shows that you would go to that would be, sometimes you could run into homophobic stuff. Um, and, and it was also just a place to kind of showcase queer musicians. Oh, cool. So it was really focused around music and zines. I, there was a, a parallel at a time in Toronto with G.B. Jones and um, oh. Bruce LaBruce. Yes, they, yeah. They had basically come up with, I think they came up with the term homocore, and then Joanna knew those people and basically started a Chicago version of it. And oh, as far as I know, those were kind of like the two main homocore areas, and and then it just kind of like spread a little bit. But it was a very '90s thing, and it was very much like zines, music, and in the Toronto scene anyway, it was a lot of like weird filmmaking and I can, I can feel Ian getting itchy right now. Cause we're not talking about Buffy, but uh, <laughs> I just want to say, if you're listening to this and you haven't seen like a Bruce LaBruce movie, you should go see one. The one I love the most is raspberry Reich, which is about this like queer intifada group. <laughs> like These like, um, they're usually comedies. They're usually porns. And they're usually like these sort of like punk, like interventions. And they're not good. I don't want you to think you're going to watch a masterpiece, <laughs> but, but yeah. like, raspberry Reich contains the phrase that I have stolen and use every day, which is heterosexuality is the opiate of the masses. Um, but he has a new one coming out like this year about like an all girls school where they murder men. I highly recommend him as like a like you were saying, like this like post punk queer aesthetic. Ian, you want to talk about Buffy? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anthony, you know what? 
you can cut whatever I say. If this episode does not even contain me, I'll be like, well, I understand. Uh, <laughs> I do want to say that teen Ian would have thought that uh, 36-year-old Ian thinks that's really cool. Teen Ian would have thought that was the coolest fucking thing because the only places me and my friends had to go to like go to like see hardcore punch shows was a fucking church. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that is dire. Well, I think most <laughs> most of the homocore shows were in a bowling alley in um at the Fireside oh, really? Bowl in Chicago. Oh my god. See that your your life is the version of rent I wish we had. Like that sounds so much better. <laughs> Evan, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm very well. I'm very good. I um I have survived the the purge that uh, has befallen every queer writer in the last two weeks, including Mary. Um, so um, I'm okay, but... How about you, Evan? How am I doing on, like, a fundamental level? <laughs> <laughs> Just checking Just in. a mental check-in before we dive into this, like, post-apocalyptic, post-death situation, which is this episode. Yeah, all good so far. Can't complain. <laughs> um, all right, so, yeah, I guess we'll um, start the episode. Yeah, I I mean, like I said, I can't keep saying how relentless this is, but this episode's, like, real bleak. Um, you know, at least I felt like in the first episode, and we talked about this, Anthony, Buffy Bot was at least the, like, breath of, like, comedy and, like, fun. Yes, and it is very important that she be torn apart in this episode, right, yeah. All she does in this episode is, like, it starts with her getting kicked to death i mean i guess not to death because she's a robot but like her getting kicked at buffy's grave by a group of biker demons and like then she gets ripped apart like there's never like i'm just like oh this poor robot yeah and i think it's it's not an i mean they are being intentional about it right like she is being very carefully styled in an outfit that is not quite exactly but She'll never be exactly Buffy's outfit from the end of season five, right? Like, she looks like Buffy jumping to her death. Even her, like, battle damage is, like, this bright, twinkly Christmas light kind of effect. Like, she is the note of positivity that the episode wants relentlessly to menace and eventually tear apart. Um, and it is yeah. <laughs> it is a grueling process to watch, but it is, it is being thought about, I think. Yes. Yeah, I, I was thinking that. Like, that's totally on purpose. I guess my whole question with this episode was sort of wondering why we needed a second part. Um, I just wasn't sure narratively. It just felt like both of these episodes are so slow um, and leading us up to sort of the inevitability that Buffy would come back. So I just sort of found myself from the beginning of this episode wondering why we were doing a part two. Well, first of all, when when you told me we were doing bargaining part two, I was like, great, I'll, I'll talk about any Buffy episode. I love it. And then I rewatched it last night and I was like, oh, shit, this is so traumatizing. This is a really hard episode to watch. And it's really hard for me to sort of talk about. Um, I feel like this, it, the episode starts off with the creepy motorcycle gang telling the Buffy bot, I'll service you girl toy. That was like the line that stood out to me, like that they're just completely taking away all of her power and and really demeaning her and I feel like the whole episode is sort of where if the arc of Buffy in general the underlying sort of like catharsis of it is that these young powerless girls are like kicking men's asses and fighting back and um and sort of like fighting back against this like 
ever-present male violence that's always like hunting them, you know, like if the vampires and demons are sort of like the a stand-in for like rapists and murderers and stuff like that, then this is the episode where they just like drop all pretense yeah. and they're like, these 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 men want to like do terrible yeah. things to you. And I guess uh, maybe we should say content warning because this is actually a through line through the episode and it will actually even more than that service line become explicit by sort of the climax of the episode, right? Which is about a sexual menace, um, which is also going to be a theme of the season, right? Like, Yeah, like these, these guys literally threaten to rape the entire gang. Like they literally say that. And they're talking about like their demon penises and how they're going to tear them up and stuff. It's like yeah. so awful, yeah. you know? Yeah. But what I feel like is good about it, 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 it really like brings that catharsis to a point to a like completely razor thin point where you're like oh okay if I didn't realize before that that's what Uh this is about now I know and and it it kind of wears the, the whole team down and it wears Buffy down to the point where she's just like completely vulnerable and it's only when you're like that vulnerable do you do you sort of realize how much you have to fight you know so I feel like the way the episode starts out is right away just shoving that in our face. Like, like you are going to get destroyed if you don't fight back. And it's it's really intense, but it's also like that's how we find Buffy's yeah. power again. Yeah. yeah, I just this is also like it's like, oh my god, this I hate the biker gang. Um I I think I might have said this in the last episode. I just feel like they feel like they are, should be uncharmed. Like they feel like they're from a different show. Um and yeah, like, you know, at the end they make that, which we will get to, um, they make the, like, explicit, like, rape threats, and ugh, I don't know, I just hate them. But I do think, like you said, Anthony, all of this is intentional. You're supposed to hate yeah. them. It's supposed to be bleak. I mean, don't um, get me wrong, I'm not making a case that it's good. <laughs> uh, I think that Evan's point is very true, that the, the broth is, like, I, I mean, you two haven't, we already talked about part one, but uh, one of the critiques we had in part one is how thin the story is. And it's become, like Evan said, there's no story left anymore, right? Like, what could have been uh, summed up in one scene, which is Buffy pops out of her grave and kills... You could have cat or killed the demon gang right there, right? There's not really any reason that the plot... And the you can watch the story cheat to make more story happen, right? Like, Xander and Willow and Tara and Anya separate for no reason for and no then spend the rest of the reason. episode trying to find each other, right? Like, it's literally... The plot is just designed to expand the story. Um, Spike and Dawn head to the magic shop for no reason. There's no reason they're safer there than they are at the house. The, like, the action is designed to dilate to no great effect. And the 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 demon gang has no real motive. They just decide to settle in the town for no reason. Um, as much as last time we were arguing that it would have been nice to spend a bit more time with the gang without Buffy, once she's there, there's no story here. And we're ready for the next episode, which is her dealing with the trauma. And can I just add, I totally agree about the, I had that note in here as well. There's no reason at all why they separate. There's it's actually rooted in no logic whatsoever. And then the second they separate mm. from one another, they're both wondering where the other pair is. And it's like, well, you made that choice. Um, and I just want to mention, uh, we were talking about the demons earlier. They're remarkably bad at fighting. Um, 
when they're like yes. kind of circling <laughs> Buffy in the beginning, they like can't seem to make a decision about are they trying to kill her? Are they trying to take her? Like, what is the goal? But like for her being a robot, they are like remarkably like not proficient at the simple task of like doing something with her. Um, and even later on when they're not to jump ahead, but when they're in the alleyway with Willow and, and Xander and all of them, they like can't just go and attack them. They banter, banter, banter um, to the point yeah. where it's kind of like, okay, like we need to do something here. And I mean, not to be a jerk, but that problem is aggravated by the performances of the demons, right? Like, and they're talking through prosthetics, but like that alleyway scene you're talking about, like he takes so long to even say his dialogue and then when they fight, it has the... I just, like, looked up the dates of a bunch of Quentin Tarantino movies because I thought that this episode, rewatching it, was thinking about Kill Bill and thinking about um, Death Proof because Buffy has to punch her way out of her grave just like in Kill Bill, the, like, threats of sexual violence. Um, and then that scene at the end where the three girls are just wailing on this big dude, which is straight out of the end of Death Proof. Um, like, <laughs> you're right. Like, he can't seem to fight at all. And he just seems to stand there talking about all the things he's going to do to them for a long time. Like, why would you listen to somebody talk about what he was going to do to you for as long as they do? See, I I disagree with the idea that there's kind of no point to, to all of this being drawn out the way that it is. Because to me, this whole episode is like really, really highlighting the vulnerability versus power mm-hmm. dynamic there. And like when we see these guys surrounding the Buffy bot that's an avatar for all the bad things that could happen to Buffy if she Mm -hmm. wasn't such a badass you know it's like and we're seeing her she's at her weakest point where she's just like unable to fight doesn't know how to do anything can't even talk and then the Buffy bot is this avatar for like what would happen if she doesn't sort of snap back into it um so I think that they're they're just like really digging into that vulnerability so they can build the power back up And I also think this episode is secretly about Willow, like that this is, you know, Willow sort of owns season six as we move ahead. And I don't want to get ahead of anybody, but like, this is the episode that sets up sort of Willow's power between bargaining part one and bargaining part two. She is learning how much power she has, and she's making Mm -hmm. sort of all the wrong decisions, you know? So in this episode, like, she realizes that she screwed up and that Buffy um, was still in her grave, right? She, she sort of, uh, she programs the Buffy bot to come back to her, which leads the gang right to them. It's like Willow's making all these mistakes because she's got all the power now. So I feel like the whole episode, like even though it's sort of drawn out and there's a lot of weird space around everything, it's giving us time to sort of steep in this idea of, mm-hmm. of the vulnerability versus the power that they have and like what they're, what they're doing with that. Like when they make the decisions to sort of like get it together and when they make the wrong decisions. And, and it's funny that you brought up the Quentin Tarantino thing, because for me, the biker gang was like immediately years later watching it now, again, I'm thinking of Negan oh. in the walking dead. Like that biker gang to me was like so Walking Dead, so just like the most vicious right. post-apocalyptic. Yeah, thing yeah. That it, you I, I, I think there's something definitely to that. Like, and discussions of Willow's power levels keep happening throughout the episode, right? Like, how powerful are you? Oh, more powerful than I thought. And like, we get the callback to the spell Tara uh, Willow tried to do with the light. 
um, in way back in season four with on in fear itself, like we're seeing their power, the scaling up of their powers being tracked for us. Um, and the consequent uh, carelessness with that power is also being tracked for us, right? Like, oops, she was in the ground. She had to dig herself out. I guess we should have thought about that, right? <laughs> like Willow's inability to make a good decision mm-hmm. is important. Um, I had the road on my mind too with the like the biker gangs and like the rape threats. Like there is something about as much as it's gross and as much as some of the conversation feels very unearned, it, toxic masculinity is the thing that has manifested as the threat and is the the bad guy of season six for a lot of season six. And so having it be so cartoony here off the top almost sort of enters that theme into the register, I think. I think the thing that I do think it's thin. I don't think we needed the second. I think Evan's right. But I think as always, the reason it, it works more than it should is because the cast commits, right? I think for me, like one of the better scenes is after they split up, there's a scene of like Willow realizing that this, well, I mean, it didn't, but she's thinking the spell failed and we get to see Willow process that Mm -hmm. buff on. And I really, like I put that in my notes that I wish we could have gotten more of that. Like we never really saw the characters processing Buffy's death, right? Because season five ends with, she jumps off, there's a tombstone, that's the end. Season six begins with, you know, there's already been a whole summer um, and we don't like they're all depressed, but we don't see them processing it. Um, I don't know. And I I think that that we needed more episodes like that, where it's just them. Like maybe this episode could have been two parts if we kept getting flashbacks to like whatever the hell they were doing over the summer. Um, Mm. You know, I remember I I can't remember if Dark Horse always had the rights to Buffy, but whoever had the rights to Buffy at the time in comic book form, it might've been Dark Horse. They did a comic that was like, what was the summer like? Um, And it showed Willow going through all these like trials to like find the spell to bring Buffy back. And that was like her way of like putting off mourning Buffy's death. I don't know. I think that would have been really interesting rather than the plot we get here. I don't know. To that point, I mean, the thing about Willow suddenly grieving Buffy's really gone is like it enters into the register that um, this season is about you start to move on to something healthy and something interrupts that process right like Willow finally begins to grieve in a healthy way and surprise Buffy's back right like Buffy is dealing this whole episode with the fact that she was in a state of completion she was done and it was perfect Um, season five is the greatest series finale that isn't a series finale right like the show finishes and then has to stutter back and is now like the thing the Anya the joke Anya makes that Buffy's a zombie the show is kind of a zombie now too right like it's not quite right Um, and I like its willingness to even at the very end of the episode its last beat is that dissonant like something's wrong with Buffy kind of thing you know and I do, I just wanted to put, I feel like this is important to point out. I do really like the Spike and Dawn scenes. I like watching Spike legitimately be a really good superpowered babysitter to Dawn. Then we get Anya. So they, the group splits up for a second and then splits up again, right? Because at the end of the first episode, Tara saves Anya from one of the bikers. But then the group regroups and then they split up again, which as we all agree, it seems very silly. I actually really like the scenes of Tara and Anya together in the magic shop um, because we don't get a lot of them. um, And it's nice to see the two characters that get probably like the least amount of screen time just getting their own scenes together. And I like Tara comforting Anya. You know, she pets her hair, which is a cute little detail. Um, 
while they're hugging and then like and then Tara's like oh wait I can do a spell um which I wanted to point out did you all realize that Tara does more action in these two episodes than she like does in the entire series this is her only demon kill I believe in the whole show right which she says (laughs) she does it with a really good really gay line which is like when (laughs) Stabbing the guy in the back of the head, she says, "Nobody messes with my girl." Yeah, with an axe, like a—is it a labrys? I'm not sure if it's a labrys, or not, <laughs> is it a but labrys? it should be. It well yeah, be. it should yeah. be. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that is, Anthony. <laughs> oh, uh, Mary will explain. <laughs> uh, labrys is like the ancient lesbian symbol. It's a double-headed axe. I have no idea why. I think it was supposed to be like the symbol of the Amazon. Yeah, it's an Amazon weapon. Um, it's like a very 60s back to the land lesbian. Evan, I need you to back me up here. Did you know what that was? I did not, but I enjoy knowing now. Okay, but one, (laughs) but if you, okay, so the best, if you watch the movie Bound, the Wachowskis movie Bound, it is a, it is a plot point in it that the lesbians recognize each other because like the Diesel Dyke character has a Labrys tattoo on her wrist, which you need to watch. Bound is like probably the Wachowskis. We all have Labrys tattoos on our wrists. It's, um. It's a lesbian law. <laughs> you get initiated, you get a Labrys tattoo. It's either on your wrist or on the right, back of Right, depending on if you're going to be active or a sleeper agent, right? Whether like, you're a top or a bottom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you kids keep me on. Um, so, <laughs> where was I? Anthony, where was I? <laughs> uh, they were separating in the woods, um, which, uh, by the way, like one of the uh, weird effects of this two-parter is that you can tell that Marty Noxon wrote part one and perfectly set it up so that they would be separated, right? Like, that's why the episode ends with them separated, and for some reason, David Fury puts them back together just to separate them. Like, he seems to have missed the fact that he inherited a perfect way for them to be separated, which is that they they got lost in the woods, they decide independently they're going to head to the magic shop, but Willow and Xander get lost, and so and then they have to dispatch the light. Like, that's a better reason but for some reason he wants them all talking at each other and then separate <laughs> i feel like again and you know maybe i've got to say like maybe i do see this episode through a certain lens because i am um a woman and i'm also a sexual assault survivor and like to me this episode just is like completely wrapped up in that reality mm-hmm. and to me this with this episode like they just keep coming back to this vulnerability, right? Like the the fact that everyone is separated into these different camps, that makes them more vulnerable to this demon biker gang that's like ravaging the whole town. And even when Dawn is with Spike, I I feel like, yes, we we see Spike talking about Buffy and how much he wants to protect Dawn. He won't leave her alone. He seems pretty tame at this point, but we know Spike enough to know that we don't ever quite feel safe with him. Mm-hmm. And Dawn as like a 13 year old or whatever, being alone with Spike during all this craziness happening doesn't feel totally safe either, especially with what happens with Spike later in the season. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we just keep seeing this sort of like if Buffy the Vampire Slayer as a series is like this cathartic feminist utopian fantasy, right, where this young girl kicks all these guys asses over and over again when they're trying to do bad things. This episode is like the feminist nightmare. Mm-hmm. Like this is like tapping into women's deepest fears about 
basically being raped and, and all this violence happening. And like every moment of this episode to me is a setup for that, like a reminder of that vulnerability, a reminder of that threat. Like when Don's alone with Spike, when when Tara and Anya are alone in the magic shop and all this, like it's all happening right outside. Every moment of this is just a reminder of these things that could happen. And and then like the culmination is when the team gets together in the end and they find that strength together and Buffy sort of waits, wakes back up and realizes that like she has to fight. So it, it is kind of like this long drawn out arc and it really bashes you in the head with it. Like you're vulnerable, you're vulnerable, bad things can happen. And, and if you're like me, you're like, yes, I know. Okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't really need to see it spelled out. But I think for some people, it does need to be spelled out, you know, that this is, this is the world, this is what you're up against. And you have to find that power and you have to find your people and you have to fight. Yeah, no, I really like that reading. Um, I mean, it's dark as fuck, but this is a dark as fuck episode. And season, yeah. Um, Totally whatever point I wanted to point out. I want to see if Anthony, if you realized, or did anyone watch Desperate Housewives? I have never seen it. I have to say, no. What? I know. I, know, well, I haven't I know. either. So I'm I'm being a fake fan. I only know this. All right, you're all sexual. <laughs> Evan, have you watched it? I have not. Oh, oh my god! With the lesbian is the only one who's seen it. So, I remember in the episode in the episode Hush when the gentlemen come out of that like creepy whatever church or house or whatever they're in, and they go down the road. I'm pretty sure the set that Buffy walks down is the exact same set that the gentlemen first fly out of, which is the same set that they use for Wisteria Lane. And the only reason I know that is because Matthew pointed that out when we recorded that episode, Anthony, about Hush. Because I was like, oh, this looks like the same set from Hush. Oh, which is the same set from Desperate Housewives. It does look oddly suburban. Like, it's a strange choice. Like, so much of this, like, um, as Mary was saying, there is something about a dystopian nightmare, but there is, it's Sunnydale at its most, like, urban throughout. Like, it's definitely like, oh, no, our our metropolis is in danger. And, like, that street was oddly, like, why would you set fire so much to just, like, someone's street that they live on? So like, I wanted really... to, like, I wanted to ask about that because... I had a really hard time grasping how large this demon gang was because they're in the cemetery, they're by Buffy's house, they're by the magic box. And then also I was just confused because it seemed to be that they were hoping to, now that Buffy was gone, they were going to set up shop in Sunnydale. But to your point, they're literally burning everything down. So it just seemed (laughs) counterintuitive that there are all these nice suburban California, like giant houses that they could go in, you know, raid the refrigerators, et cetera. Um, I guess they drink blood, but, uh, but just, I was confused with the sort of motivation around the idea that they're going to take it over. And also, and, I never really had this question before with Buffy, but if this is this extremely large gang, which we're led to believe it's the numbers are very massive, was Buffy that strong of an adversary that they could not have come in there all 40, 50, 100, however many of them, and taken out Buffy? Like they were that fearful. And I guess that speaks to Buffy's sort of um, reputation. But I thought it was interesting that they really were that afraid of Buffy that they wouldn't have even come close to Sunnydale in the past until they knew that she was no longer around. Yeah. I mean, yes, you are right. (laughs) That's, I do think that's a thing the show always never quite landed on is how powerful Buffy is. Um, Because right. Like 
if she's this powerful and the gang is like living in fear of her, but then like, you know, there are episodes where like she puts up like one random vampire puts up a really good fight with her. Right. And it feels like that gang and, would be stronger than that. <laughs> and and to your point, I yes, I agree that that's sort of always a lingering question. I think it became more, I was thinking about it more actively in this episode. And I also just want to point out when Buffy is first walking around Sunnydale when she first uh, comes out of the grave and the man comes outside with a shotgun. Oh, right. And tells her to get away <laughs> from his car. Meanwhile, there are all these crazy demons running around. <laughs> I'm just like, this is a 20 something woman in suburban California. Who's literally all wig. she's doing is standing by your car and you're literally, <laughs> he fires a warning shot. And I just thought there was some moments. Um, I guess some of the logic in this episode, I'm not usually this, like discerning of logic with the show but i feel like some of the holes that we're talking about just with regards to the way things played out like why are they separating these sort of questions i don't usually find myself asking i found myself asking a lot more in this episode yeah and again the entire tv show the walking dead is basically an expanded version of this episode (laughs) like this is the most, well, I mean, I, we have a lot of post-apocalyptic episodes in Buffy, but this one, I feel like was one of the first that really drew this picture of what it would be like at the end of the world. Like people come outside with their shotguns in right, the suburbs, right. you know, yeah. that's only when things really get to the very end. Which like, I'm not American, so I'm, I don't know <laughs> these things, but you can't fire a shotgun <laughs> warning shot right like you can't like if you fire a shotgun you fired it right like now you have to reload isn't that how it works like when he shoots i feel like that's a i don't know anyway um but to the to the walking dead point i think that's a very like astute parallel to like i i only watched the first season of walking dead and i had to stop watching it because um especially the first season it's frank darabont um who as an artist i feel like is so governed by this overarching misogyny um if you watch like the first if you've never seen the walking dead the first scene is two men in a car talking about what horrible bitches women are and when they're going to cause the end of the world and the next shot is the world has ended and then the logic of that first episode is this man who has to kill his zombie wife like that's literally what the first episode of walking dead is about walking dead is sort of the fantasy of what if men could have the world the way they wanted to have it right um, and I think that all zombie myths that we now tell are sort of this fear that society has become too constrained. And wouldn't it be nice if I could just solve my problems by like, what if the other was just this complete non-human other that I could just shoot? Um, and I think that Buffy has a text that wants to reconstitute a society that um, functions that could protect a woman is an important one. I don't think it's an accident either that this is the first episode without Giles in it, who is like, the one good man, right? Like, what if the one good dad went away and, like, all that were left were the bad dads? Giles is the good dad. <laughs> Not when he was Ripper. He was a, he was a bad daddy when he was Ripper. Ooh. <laughs> Ripper was daddy. Ripper was in yeah. Homocore. That's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> Ripper has a Labrys tattoo. <laughs> Ripper's a trans man with a Labrys tattoo. Oh, God, that would be so. <laughs> now I'm like, hmm, where are we? Um, Anthony, where are we in the episode? 
Um, well, we've been surprisingly more circuitous than you usually let us be, Ian. But I feel like we talked about. Um, so we talked about Buffy talking to the shotgun man, yeah. which I think is where we are. Also, does she have like cataracts? Like, why is her vision so bad? Like, every time we get a Buffy POV, it's like, what's happening? Where am I? And her like, I think it's supposed to be like everything's still coming back. Because, like, when she's first hitting uh-huh. the coffin, she can't say a word, right? She's, like, grasping for air. So I'm assuming it's, like, mm-hmm. oh, her, like, everything's coming back to her. That's why she, like, doesn't talk first and, like... I think it's supposed to make us feel what it's like to, to have, like, acute yeah. immediate trauma. You know, like, that yeah. she's sort of... I mean, I, I'm being sort of, like, obnoxiously sort of women's studies 101 during this whole thing, but... I, I do, again, feel sort of like she's, like, dissociating through the whole thing. Like, when I don't she's... think you're reaching. Like, they Willow literally says she's too traumatized. Yeah. Like, that is dialogue, right? Yeah. Yeah. But but they're trying to give us sort of a visual yeah. representation of, like, what does that feel yeah. like? And I think that kind of hits its peak when we watch the Buffy bot being torn apart and she's mm-hmm. watching it. She's looking at herself, you know, which is, like, this – this cliche about a traumatic event is that you're sort of like floating and watching it from afar and stuff. And right. So I think we're supposed to be feeling what it's like for her to be like thrust into this traumatic experience. <laughs> but real quick, Anthony, I really like this picture you painted of me as this like strict gay dad where I'm like, no, no getting off subject. <laughs> <laughs> but are you a good dad or a bad dad? <laughs> I think, can you feel me blushing? I don't have anything to say to that. I mean, well, they were sort of the fact that we like it's hard to triangulate where we are is because this episode is surprising. Barchi, uh, Barchi, Buffy, <laughs> Buffy is a very choreographed show. Usually, every scene is performing a very specific function, and in this episode, we're really just oscillating between uh, four locations, which are the separated groups, and all of them trying to find where the other ones are, and like. If you did a supercut of each person's plot, it's not a lot, right? Like Dawn is on a motorcycle and then they're here and then they're there and then they're they find Buffy. Like everything's just trying to get us right. to the tower. So like where we are is kind of uh, it depends. We've talked about sort of everything. I do um, like when Tara does a spell, Xander sees it and he's I felt like we needed more moments like that specific moment where Xander's like it's a bug and he's doing like silly Xander shtick. Um and then Willow's like, no, it's Tara. Let's go. And he's like, how long have you known your girlfriend is Tinkerbell? Like, because I think for me, Xander shines when he has cute friend moments with Willow. Like I think him and Willow have really mm. good, like cute best friend moments where it's like, she's not annoyed at him, but she's a little like, oh, come on, Xander. Cause she loves him. Right. So I really appreciate those kind of scenes. And I wish we could have had like two more i don't know <laughs> we got to weigh in on this last week ian but what do our guests think about xander and anya's secret engagement plot yeah i mean i thought it was a storyline for storyline's sake um i felt like it went on for a really long time and i i always enjoyed them together um but it, I I just remember, not to jump ahead in the season, but when everything happened as it did later on, I remember sort of feeling like a rote sigh of relief just because I felt like they had really um, wanted this relationship uh, to sort of give Xander as a character um, relevancy and sort of need. And 
that I think that he had less so as the series moved along. And I just remember this relationship. I really enjoyed Anya's development as a character, but I think if you take Anya out of the equation, Xander's sort of lack of meaning within the show becomes really clear. Um, And I Mm -hmm. also, not to hate on him, but I feel like Nicholas Brendan's performance uh, also... uh, sort of as the season as the series moves forward from season six i until the finale in which i do think he really steps up but i just sort of lost the character of xander as anything besides this unit that was xander and anya mary are you a huge xander fan uh i mean i'm more of an anya fan i think (laughs) xander is interesting to me because he sort of represents like um again from sort of a feminist lens he's like He's a little bit of like the good guy, the male feminist, like the guy who doesn't have to be the strongest one in the group and knows his own limitations and is like willing to let his his women friends fight the fight for him. But he, he right. struggles with that. He's like the he's the modern man dealing with that and and dealing with his masculinity, sort of having yeah. all these blows against it and trying to figure out what that means for him. But for me, Anya is just like. Anya's probably the character I identify with the most (laughs) because I too am like, you know, a 10,000 year old demon that doesn't know how to act human in normal human situations. (laughs) Um, But like, I just think this entire episode, the writing is weird. I'll give you that. Like the writing feels all over the place and it makes me wonder how shows like this were written because it feels like they're setting up the entire season. Like every little kind of like tangential thing that's happening like Xander and Anya's engagement it's just a setup for like the storyline to continue through the whole season but it's like how did they know that they needed to put that in this episode did they write the whole season out at once and then go back and like redo every well it's funny because we've kind of? we've talked to Jana Spenson before and she kind of right Anthony she kind of says that that's what they did like yeah, it would be, I mean, they know the broad strokes, like they always know, they know what the finale is going to be, or they think they do. And they know what everyone's kind of plot is going to be that season. And you write towards it. And you can be sort of surprised along the way by details. Like um, the example the Buffy writers always use is that they knew season three was going to end with Buffy versus the mayor. They didn't know that Faith's relationship with the mayor would become so personal. Like mm-hmm. she was just supposed to become his like flunky and she, and, and just the the tenderness of the performances led to this energy they didn't expect. Um, so they know the broad strokes. They know that Willow is building to a place where she's the arch nemesis of the season. Um, they know that Anya's story is going to be the, a sort of, dissolved marriage um but they're allowed to sort of because it is a 22 episode season which is sort of daunting now there's not a lot of shows that have to arc out a season like that anymore um because the shows that do arcs are 10 episodes now but um yeah they know they do know where they're gonna go they do know that they're gonna like this like i was saying right off the top like uh bringing all this furniture about masculine violence to the fore I think is quite intentional and sort of destroying the Buffy bot is making a thematic choice. I, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm glad for these little moments in a way, because even though the Xander Anya marriage thing is kind of like, uh, okay, why are we learning about this? It gives us moments for comedic relief that we really need during a super intense episode. Like uh-huh. Anya's always good for a laugh. Xander's always good for a laugh. Like you said, his little joke about the light being Tinkerbell and stuff like we just, we could not get through this episode unless we had 
some of the usual puns and stupid yeah. jokes and stuff. So, so those tangential plot lines are like the only thing that's sort of keeping us afloat. I totally agree that there's all this, a lot of exposition that's helping us later on. I think one of my frustrations, and I know I seem rather negative about this episode, um, but I am thinking back to this being on UPN and the idea of the budget being upped for this season and sort of the anticipation of there being new viewers to the show. Um, There was a huge campaign that rolled out called Buffy Lives that was in the months leading up to this episode. And this really was a reset. If you compare this premiere episode and i would consider this still part of the premiere you know with even buffy versus dracula or the freshman or even Anne, there is a way in which you could sort of be a casual viewer of the show and still tune into those episodes and really feel like you got a start to finish and not feel like you were so out of the loop and i feel like more than any other premiere Mm -hmm. This episode relied, so even if you watched the previously on, it relied so much on past information from the show. And not just Buffy's death, even Dawn being mm-hmm. the key, all of these details that I felt like for a premiere, there was so, the show became less, and Mary mentioned this earlier, but it became less a metaphor. Uh, and f- from the get-go, it became very entrenched in plot in a way that, for new viewers or even for people that sort of were coming for the more lighthearted aspect of Buffy. It's not to say that I wasn't down for them experimenting in a darker format for the show, but I felt like it really made a really sharp, like veering off course from the get go that I think made this particularly jarring, especially coming off of season five, which I found to be really experimental, but also really true to the format of the show. Um, you know, Glory was, mm-hmm. especially her minions, there was a lot of comedy in Glory um, as a character and, and her arc. Um, so I found this sort of amount of both plot exposition for this episode, but also future casting. I found that to be a little bit overwhelming for the casual viewer. Um, just to speak to the way this was received at the time, because uh, if you've heard me on the show before, you know that I was like a teen blog like message board Buffy guy <laughs> uh, as a teenager. So uh, you're right. I think that that's, that's the general census was that um, when the episode aired. But at this point, the show is in its sixth season. First of all, like this episode, by the way, bargaining is the, I think, second highest or possibly the highest rated viewership numbers the show ever got. This and Innocence was the other one. Innocence obviously paying off the, 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 um, the moment that, Angel sort of sits up after Buffy sleeps with him and everyone's like, oh my God, what's going to happen? So uh, there's a sense that like the viewership is now returning to the show. Um, But the other sense we had at the moment was that Joss Whedon was sort of receding from the show. This is the year that Firefly was on the air. He had three plates spinning um, and everybody um, started to say that Buffy was suffering because of it. I don't know if that's true. Um, there's also like a strain of misogyny in here that started to blame Marty Noxon for the show's weaknesses. I looked at her Twitter bio because I'm, I want her on the show for this season, but her bio (laughs) says I ruined Buffy. Yeah, that was the narrative. That was the narrative that Marty Noxon sort of stepped into Joss Whedon's shoes and fucked up. That was what everybody was saying. Um, and you would think that Buffy fans would be better about not just like, (laughs) using this casual misogyny to blame a show's weaknesses uh, 
I've said before that I don't actually think season six's perceived weaknesses are weaknesses. I think it's a season about weakness. Um, but Marty Noxon was getting all the flack for it. And this sort of plotty plottiness at the the loss of sort of Archer metaphorics was seen as like a mark of the show's departing capital G genius. That's like blaming Obama for the recession because it was already there when he <laughs> took office. Like, <laughs> when did she, I mean, this is season six, you know, it's already kind of run its course in a lot of ways. Like, don't get me wrong, I could watch Buffy new seasons until the end of time, but. Right. It's not fair that Supernatural gets so many and Buffy. <laughs> I was thinking that the other day because this is like going to be their, what, 15th season? Good lord. Ugh. I mean, I would be very happy if a show that I liked were not God. So I was 21 when the show started. If I liked a show when I was 21 and it was still going on now, I'd be really happy about that. <laughs> I, I mean, if they were like, you can write for Supernatural, I would totally do it. It's like 100% my sandbox. But can you imagine? I always feel bad for the actors. Like, can you imagine having to stay in like peak physical condition for 15 years? <laughs> It'd be so tiring. <laughs> Um, anyway, so what did I, oh, Mary, I actually really liked what you said about Xander. Um, our Mm -hmm. podcast gets a lot of flack for Xander hate, but genuinely I don't, I don't hate him, but a lot of people do. Um, and I always let people, I don't, you know, anyone who's on the show likes Buffy. So if there's something they don't like about it, I don't know. They just don't like it about, you know? Um, but I actually agree with you. I think that Xander struggles with it because we've had a lot of people say they think Xander would be a men's rights activist. And I really don't think that's true. Um, I think he might be the male feminist who explains feminism to a woman, right? Um, that's what I think he might be. <laughs> no, I mean, the men's rights activists, like we know who those guys are already. They created the Buffy bot and they killed Tara yeah. and all that stuff. Like those guys are clearly like the predecessor to Gamergate. Yeah. But Xander is, Xander genuinely loves his women friends. And, you know, he's he's gone through like the whole range of sort of straight male experience with them where he was in love with Buffy and Willow was in love with him and he wasn't in love back. And like, he's just had these like very typical relationships with all these women in his yeah. life. But at the end of the day, he can't protect them. And that's, mm-hmm. I think that's really hard for him because he wants to... I mean, you know, you can just see that like he's raised to believe that that's his job or whatever. Yeah. And part of his consistent character arc is him just sort of letting go of that and being like, okay, you're stronger than me, but here's what I can do. Right. You know, I mean, isn't there a whole episode where he's just like battered and wounded and literally can't do anything? And that's like <laughs> the entire point of the episode. <laughs> uh, the Zeppo, the one where he's sort of like, fighting uh, like his MRA friend or not friend, but the guy who's trying to blow up the school while Buffy's dealing with an apocalypse. Because they're worried Xander will get in the way, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like he's not even allowed to fight because yeah. he's just perceived as like weak. But yeah, And it's frustrating for him and that's understandable. But he, I, I feel like Xander is in this series for the, the teenage male viewers. Yes. To be like, oh yeah, because this series is giving me those feelings too. Like watching this little blonde girl be the strongest person. I'm very confused by that. You know, like, what is that? I, I don't know how that makes me feel. And he's, he's sort of the guy that processes that for the younger male viewers. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like that take. And I agree with that. He also is allowed to lag behind, right? Like that's sort of the, 
he's a male feminist in a lot of ways. And one of them is that he's not very good at it, right? Like he has to be, things need to be explained. Like, um, but the flip side of that is also something you were saying, Mary, which is he's, because he doesn't understand their traumas, he can sort of function as the lighthearted comedy because Xander is not menaced. Xander is not menaced explicitly by Razor, for example, right? Like, it's actually odd listening to it as a piece of rhetoric, that very long speech the demon gives Mm -hmm. that is quite detailed about demon penises because at some moment in it, Xander falls out, right? Like, he just is not threatened anymore. It's, like, about what it's going to do to these little girls. I know. That Um, part is weird. He says, like the demon penises are going to tear up little girls. And it's like, well, I mean, Xander could get hurt too. (laughs) (laughs) That part is a little strange to me. I I feel like they had an opportunity there to sort of explore like, you know, male, the the issue of like men being victimized by sexual assault, but they don't really do that. Yeah. It's, it just, it like, it's like a piece is missing of the speech that actually could have taken it. Like if you're going to give a speech that ugly, Make it clear you intend the speech to be as ugly as it is. Oh, yeah, right? hurt because... everybody. But I feel like <laughs> if, if Buffy was being made now and that episode was, was happening right. now, yes. they would understand that that had to be included. But maybe I agree. Um, but so circling back, um, I do really like the moment they find Buffy. So they're, you know, they're running around these alleys, which also I'm like, are these alleys like a maze? Because... There are so many, and you know. Later, we see Dawn running past the biker Buffy killed, but she doesn't pass the Scoobies. Um, but yeah, I do like that moment, which I feel like I wanted to touch upon. That it's weird that like we get the moment of them being like, "Oops, we fucked up. This is Buffy. We left her there. She had to dig her way out of her own grave." That's like a plot point of a lot of the first half of the season. Um, mm-hmm. Is the Scoobies being like, "Oh, we fucked up," um, and Willow crying and like making me cry because I love Willow and I think Alison Hannigan has a really good cry. Um, But yeah, it's weird that that's like a plot point of a lot of episodes in the beginning. And then that's not the A plot of this, right? Like the A plot of the season is Willow. Buffy dealing with trauma and coming back to life. I feel like that sounds almost silly being like, you know, the, you know, the trauma of coming back to life, you know. Um, (laughs) Well, I mean, it's such a shorthand for, I mean, it's such a shorthand for depression, right? Like so much of Buffy's story is about, um, as Mary has said, sort of trauma that, of course, because the show deals in metaphors is made here like you survived. But um, but the problem is that Buffy's trauma is not particularly cinematic, right? Um, It's hard to sort of. It's hard to make an, an exciting adventure show about a character in a fugue state, right? And that's sort of what Buffy is in. So for a lot of the plot, um, and which I think actually the musical does a very good job of uh, sort of spinning around, right? Like it's a it's a musical episode about how uncinematic her her, her depression is, right? right. Yeah. Um, also, I'm really happy, Anthony. We use we both used the same vocabulary word in our notes. I I put like you know she's walking around in a fugue state. Um, but- <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I get an A. Yay. Even like the the titles of the episodes in this series reference trauma. Like the episode four yeah. is called Flooded, which is like the the therapeutic name for when all this the traumatic feelings sort of like come back to you in a way that you can't handle. And as it goes oh, on, oh, I like didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's just like a a PTSD term or whatever. And I feel like there's a lot of ongoing references to what it's like to live with trauma in a way that's really interesting. Yeah, um, so I do, so then we get the, so then they realize it's Buffy, they realize 
she's back. They realize she had to dig her way out of her coffin, which is all really upsetting. And then the fucking bikers come in. Um, and I actually really like Buffy stepping up. Like, I like that even though she is in this fugue state, she still is like, oh, wait, I got to protect, like, I got to kill these demons and protect my friends. Um, for me, that really is like, you know, I talk about this all the time. Buffy's my hero. I love her so much. And for me, that reinforces how much I love Buffy, the character, is she's in this state where she barely knows what's going on. She can't even see that well. But even the part of her brain that's like the hero is like, nope, got to save these people. Got to save my friends. Even if maybe I'm in a fake hell or made up whatever, she still like jumps in to kill these demons to save her friends. And I love how that kind of mirrored Anne from season three in that moment yeah. of right before the demon in Anne is about to punch her. And in that episode, she has the famous, who yes. are you? I'm Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you are. And I don't know if this was an intentional homage to that, but I kind of like this moment as sort of a reference to that. But Buffy hadn't yet, didn't have the confidence in her voice um, that that version of Buffy did. So I kind of like this as sort of a contrasting moment to that to sort of show that despite the fact that her physical strength is still there, she still had not found Buffy's speaking voice at that point. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Evan. And I I think that probably was, you're probably right. That probably actually probably was an intentional callback. Um, so I feel like they do that a lot, especially in season six and seven. Um, we also forgot to talk about, I think one of the best action scenes is that cool scene of Spike standing in the road and he punches or kicks the biker off the bike. And then him and Dawn, she puts on the cute <laughs> football helmet and they get out of there. There's something lone wolf and cub about the two of them. I do think that, um, Mary's point is 100% correct that we're supposed to be reminded that Spike is a menace and also like there is the moment he pauses where he's like it looks like fun what they're doing right um so we are supposed to remember he's a threat yeah. but there is something about the pair of them on that motorcycle that is in an episode that doesn't have a lot of visual stuff going on is quite in, like it does end up in the opening credits it is the most delightful cinematic composition in the show in the episode I think why does I want to know why Dawn runs away? What did we all like that felt just like what where are you running to? Like there is something right? going on that I've never noticed before. It is possible to make a case, I think, that Dawn suspects what the Scoobies are up to. Um, because early in the episode she says, We have to wait for Buffy, and then she clarifies the Buffy bot, and she gets what the bot is telling her much quicker than I think we're like <laughs> you can't just intuit Buffy must be alive except it does kind of by itself because she seemed to intuit Buffy might come back earlier in the episode she's not stunned to see her I think um there's sort of like an unresolved like if you were to do the story you were talking about Ian where you show them what their summer was like if I were telling that story Ooh. I would have Dawn doing her usual thing of standing on the top of the stairs overhearing conversations she's not supposed to overhear right um she would be amenable to, she's tried to use a resurrection spell before, right? So I think that you could make a case that Dawn kind of knows what they're up to. I like that reading, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do like Anya has the line, which, again, I wish we got more of Anya stuff like this, when she's just like, does this mean we win? When Buffy beats up the guys right before she runs away. The Dawn and the Buffy bot scene before Dawn runs away, I think is like really upsetting. Uh, this is, I feel like this episode for me uh, there's a lot where I make my case to defend Dawn. Um, and this is just like, fuck. Like, Dawn sees the robot. 
ripped apart that looks exactly like her sister that she has been like, you know, secretly cuddling with so she feels a family bond to someone. And the Buffy bot is the one that kind of tells her, no, the other Buffy. You know, Dawn, Dawn's role in the series seems to be that she's always in danger and needs somebody to protect her. And like, it just sort of wakes up that instinct in Buffy, I guess. But I never really, I've always felt as if Dawn was a little bit heavy handed personally. Like we didn't need as much of her vulnerability. I felt like the show had a hard time growing up with Dawn um, because she was such a device for season five. And then suddenly season six came around and it was like, well, she's still here. And I feel like even the fact that she had to have Spike babysitting her, it's like she's around the age Buffy was when she started slaying. And Buffy was literally out in graveyards with demons. And here Dawn's not like safe enough to sit at home by herself. It just seemed like there was this treatment of Dawn that she was so fragile, which made sense in the earlier season because we knew that she was the key. But now in season six, you kind of had to question there was a coddling of Dawn that felt a little unnecessary, especially as she grew up more and more. Yeah, I would. I agree with that. I, Which I mean, right, that's the end of the season where Buffy's like, oh, I tried to protect you too much. And then with season seven, we open with her training Dawn. That's what she should have been doing from the beginning. I mean, I feel like if you're living in Sunnydale where there's a literal hell mouth and demons are everywhere, you should, oh, like... I would have wanted to try. She should have been training Joyce as well. She should have been like, this is how you fight in case. Well, this is a, I think that's a def- that speaks to a defect of Buffy's character that goes through the seasons, right? That Buffy has a tendency to be like, no, I am the one. I am the only one. I have, this is why there's no prophecies about the Slayer and her friends. That becomes the arc of the show, right? Buffy learning to share her power in the, in the series finale, right? That um, you can't just empower yourself. You have to, if you don't, pass that power on you haven't really done what you're supposed to do which as much as I have problems with season seven is what that season is about right like one of my favorite moments in season seven is in the first episode where she gives Dawn a cell phone (laughs) (laughs) because she's saying like here this is a weapon like this the ability to communicate the ability to share that there's a problem and to tell me there's a problem is a weapon Um, and really I, I honestly think you can take that little scene of the cell phone and read the whole season out of it Evan's point earlier about how a lot of this seems to be a callback to Anne, I think is spot on because so much of Buffy is actually, so many of the episodes of Buffy are about her re-performing the same problem, which is that she's shut down, shut everybody out, and has to learn how to let people back in. Yeah, I also feel like we, in this episode and in every episode, we're constantly being reminded that Buffy never wanted any of this. Like she never asked to be the Slayer. She wanted to be a normal teenage girl. And part of that thing um, of her constantly having the weight of the world on her shoulders and having to be the one that fights every battle is I think a a mixture of her not knowing really what to do with this power that she was bestowed upon her that she never wanted And then also kind of wanting to protect everybody else from having that experience. Like, again, there's a weird sort of parallel to going through this trauma there where she's like, I am the only one that can take all of this on and still be resilient enough to keep fighting. Um, But but I don't want anyone else to have to go through that. I mean, not to skip ahead. I just did the series finale. I think you're allowed to skip (laughs) (laughs) ahead. My favorite moment in this episode, and I use it as a gif all the time on the internet, is when she's on the tower and she asks Dawn, is this hell? Oh, yeah. And you realize that, like, she 
can no longer tell the difference between reality and just like the worst demon hell dimensions because she's been through so much, you know, and I don't know where I'm going with this anymore, but the, the is this hell line for me just really summarized Buffy being sort of like burdened by this mm-hmm. life. I'm going to do the thing Ian gets mad when I do, but like <laughs> in, in Paradise Lost, uh, <laughs> not to suggest the episode is referencing Paradise Lost, but there's a moment in it that uh, Re does the same tableau here where Satan is on a high precipice looking at paradise. Uh most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And he realizes hell is something he carries with him, that he is hell. Hell is within him. Mm. And that's sort of Buffy's problem here, that she, no matter where she is, her own traumas mean she can't experience, like that great line she has about the light later, that she doesn't feel it. I think, I'm not suggesting it's a reference, but there is something about how trauma, the world is as your internal state makes it, right? And we we how much she's been through sort of like how we realize how much Paris Hilton has been through by the time we get to the end of the American meme on Netflix. And it's like, Oh my God, Paris has just been walking around dead inside for the last like 15 years. And we did this to her. Like, it's like, we're all willow in this episode where we realize that we have just totally done wrong by Paris. Anyway. So real quick, before we wrap up, um, I wanted to point out, I do like that. So Buffy leaves them. I like the Scoobies, like the, so whatever his name is, the head, what's his name again? The head demon. Razor. Razor. Oh God. <laughs> Nothing about it is good. <laughs> when Razor gets up and has his razor blade finger tip things. Oh yeah. Feminism 101. Um, Willow breaks his penis fingers, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> fingers, Lord. I like watching all the Scoobies fight. I don't know why Tara didn't use more magic. Her magic's really imbalanced a lot of the time. And I think it's just to show like Willow's the more powerful one. I felt like when Tara killed the demon, it was like the butchest moment that he's got. <laughs> like her and Willow are such like delicate little like hippie, woo, witchy, granola femme lesbians, <laughs> like college dykes. And in that moment when Tara hits him with the labrys and is like, <laughs> nobody messes with my girl. It's like she is butch for just a minute. She's wearing a flannel and combat yeah. boots and she's got like a buzz cut. <laughs> and it's like just for a minute, all of the lesbians watching were like, oh. And then, you know, it went back to like hippie, woo, <laughs> goddess worshipping lesbians. Hey, to be fair... I always, for the last, like, three episodes of season five, my favorite outfit was, like, Willow's high butch look, where she's, like, wearing a flannel and a turtleneck and, like, beige pants and, like, also a jacket on top of it. I love it. I love it. (laughs) So then we get the scene on the tower. I would like to know what our guests thought of this scene. Evan, what did you think of the scene on the tower? Um, I found it a little cheesy. Um... Yeah, I I feel so negative. Um I feel like we got that scene already. I understood thematically it was trying to retread on purpose. So I I am in on the the conceit. Um I just felt I guess again to something we were talking about earlier. I can see it as setting up a larger theme throughout the season, which was sort of Buffy's lack of belonging in this world and you know everything that gets exposed in the musical episode i just um i just wanted like this all goes back to the idea of the inevitability of the end i knew we were going to have to get 
to a place where Buffy being back was normal again. And so for me, everything leading up to that moment was just like, I kind of found myself being like, okay, well, when is her vision going to come back? When is everyone going to realize she's back? And then by the end of this episode, I was thinking about, well, when is Giles going to find out? And so a lot of this felt just sort of like place setting for an inevitable, I don't know, going with this metaphor, an inevitable dinner. And so that scene to me, nothing happened that I didn't think was going to happen. And understanding that it was trying to call back to the season five finale, that felt so prescriptive to me um, that I just kind of wanted them to get home. I wanted Buffy to have a shower. Um, I wanted get rid of that. I, I felt like I wanted things. Yeah, I, I wanted things to move along quicker. So I appreciated the sentimentality of the scene, um, but it didn't do anything unexpected that I was craving it to do. I think this this is so interesting. The fact that this episode is is so heavy on like the basics of. PTSD and how it is when it's in its like initial acute state and then how it goes on for months and months because it goes on for episodes and episodes you know we we don't even learn about the sort of heaven hell thing until the the musical episode but what I think is so fascinating about this is that now we have entire tv shows built around women who are uh, survivors of rape and assault and who are living with PTSD. Like we have Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, we have Jessica Jones. Those are shows where they literally reference it over and over again. They talk about PTSD, they they joke about um, the sort of jumpiness that you might have when you hear the sound of Velcro and you freak out and you don't know why. Or with Jessica Jones, her friend is like, is that your PTSD? Are you managing it? You know, it's like, are you are you medicating? All that kind of stuff. But Buffy, at the time, this was, I'd never seen anything like that. You know, nobody, nobody talked about stuff mm-hmm. this dark on television, unless, as you just said, it was just a crime that resulted in a death. Like, like we had the gore right. and the, the violence on television, but we didn't have a person who survived it over and over again and had to keep going. And that's, to me, what makes PTSD such an interesting narrative to to talk about is that you have to keep living with it. You know, it's not just something that just goes away. You don't always die at the end of some horrible crime. You go on for 25 more years and you wake up every day going, oh, do I have to? Or, or whatever it is that Buffy is going through. Mm. And this is really like the first time that I, I think we ever saw that on television. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. All right, I think we're at the end. Anthony, are we at the end? I I guess so. We didn't talk about outfits. Well, Ian. that's what we're getting to. <laughs> um, the end means I ask you all your favorite outfit. Okay, Anthony, what's your favorite outfit? I have a soft spot and would wear Dawn's spangly fleur-de-lis number from the end of the episode. And Buffy's funeral outfit is terrible to me. The kitten heel thing that she's wearing. You don't bury someone in black. My favorite outfit, though, is Dawn's football helmet. <laughs> All right, uh, Evan? Yeah, uh, it's a tough, tough one. Um, the only thing that jumps out to me would be Anya's belt. Oh, um, I didn't even clock it. I just it. think it is, it's gigantic, and it has, uh, it's periwinkle, and it has tons of studded holes in it. Um so that is what comes to mind. Uh, Mary? Wow. Everyone's so detailed. And here I was just thinking like, 
I really like that Buffy just goes full goth and is just walking around in her crazy, crazy lady, like matted hair, long black velvety dress that just like drags along the ground. But apart from that, which I really do like as a look for her, I would have to say that as much as I hate the demon horde um, motorcycle gang, they have these really cool like face harnesses that they're wearing, like like a sexy leather BDSM face harness that is, I think, literally keeping their faces together. Also, Evan, as an expert on Sarah Michelle Gellar, I need to ask you this question because we discussed this last episode. Is that a wig or is her hair like that because they were filming Scooby-Doo? Oh, that's such a good question. I I don't know the answer to that. I don't want to give misinformation, but uh, I'm going to heavily guess that it's a wig in both Scooby-Doo and in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Because wait, so the only reason that I think it might not be a wig is because why would they make it? It's like reddish brown, right? And that's her hair in Scooby-Doo, even if it's a wig, it's like reddish. So for me, it was like, oh, the dye's still coming out or like she couldn't completely go blonde because they were maybe doing reshoots or whatever for Scooby-Doo. And then her hair stays. (laughs) This is, of course, my reference because I'm sure you all have seen the podcast cover art, but like the action figure of season six is like her with the reddish brown hair that she has in Once More a Feeling, which she does have. Um, And it's not blonde again until like mid-season. So that's why I always thought it wasn't a wig, but then everyone kind of agreed that it was in the first episode of recording. Yeah, I also would say the lack of edges... um in her hair that you see would indicate that it was a wig. And I think that the fact that you see it that color for so long in the season only lends itself to being a wig even more um, because they would need to keep, she'd need to keep her hair consistently one way while subbing it to a completely other way while filming Scooby-Doo. So I'm going to vote wig and I'm going to vote poorly styled wig. (laughs) The first thing that I thought when I saw that hair was that this is where we learn that Buffy is not a natural blonde. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a wig. Wig, I think. And the reason we know it's a wig is because usually when a character is wearing something, and you're like, is it a wig or isn't it? You have no way of knowing. But she's also on screen in this episode as the Buffy bot with her normal hair. Uh, all right. So <laughs> scene, Mary. Um, oh, God, that's a real ugh, it's a toss up. I love when Tara says nobody messes with my girl and has this like one butch moment, the one like <laughs> light reference to like masculinity among lesbians that we're ever going to see for this whole series um but I, I really really like and I've already talked about it I really like when Buffy's on the tower and she legitimately doesn't know whether she's in hell or not because she's been somewhere so peaceful and nice she comes back to the real world and the real world is so horrifying like for me that moment comes back to me all the time like when I moved back to New York after eight years of living in Portland Oregon Mm -hmm. and I got to Brooklyn and it was like day two after moving back and I immediately realized I'd made a terrible mistake and I remember that scene popping into my head and me being like oh my god am I in hell Evan what was your favorite scene I would have to say my favorite scene is when Buffy first back from the dead approaches the Buffy bot and the Buffy bot makes eye contact with her right before her untimely death and mouths her name. I think it's just a really powerful moment and it kind of makes you realize how much as as an audience we have invested in this robot. But I also think that what that scene shows is Sarah Michelle Gellar's acting as the Buffy bot is easy to overlook because of the seeming simplicity of it. 
Sarah Michelle Gellar doesn't get her due a lot as an actress. Um, and I think this is a great moment of really showing the how dynamic she can be. Um, Evan, I love that because I agree. I always like, ugh, yeah, I feel like so many of my notes are like, why didn't they win Emmys for this <laughs> when I'm doing for this podcast? Anthony, what's your favorite scene? I'm drawn to the same scene as both of the guests. Mar- Mary's thing about hell, is this hell, I think is true. I like the, I like the moments in Buffy when it, almost touches on being poetry and i think that is this hell is amazing and i think that that moment at the end of the the buffy bots last line is something like where did the other buffy go maybe and it just she ends on a maybe and i think i'm obsessed with line breaks in poetry and i think that that suspension of possibility buffy for a show that is so much about the boundary between life and death refuses to talk much about that other world and i love that that maybe is just sort of left hanging in the air. And my favorite scene is Mary. I agree. I love Tara defending Willow. Okay. So now we're going to grade the episode. Uh, Evan, what grade do you give the episode? I would give the episode a C minus. Okay. All right. Anthony? Uh, I think I gave it a C minus part one, and I feel like I'm still there. It is whatever the structural flaws were last uh, half are still here. All right. Mary? Well, as I said earlier, when we were all just chatting, I'm giving this episode a T for trauma. (laughs) That's on my personal episode rating scale. But I would like to give um, everyone who hosted and guested on this episode an A+. Wow. It's been a really good conversation. And I learned today that at Mia Koopa on Twitter is also an English literature professor, which I did. I think I gave last episode a C and I think I'm going to stick with a C. I think this one has maybe a little bit more issues, but I think Sarah Michelle Gellar's like doing both really helps like her commitment to like, I don't know, her acting's always A plus on the show, but I still would give the episode itself a C. Thank you all for joining us. And thank you everyone for listening. If you'd like to follow SlayerFest98, you can find us on Twitter at SlayerFestX98. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. And if you like us, feel free to subscribe to us and rate us. And if you want to follow me, I'm at IanXCarlos on all platforms. Anthony, where can people find you? Um, As Mary just like amazingly gave me the layup on, I am Mia Koopa everywhere. (laughs) Um, Mary, where can everyone find you? I am at Mary Emily O'Hara on pretty much every social media platform. Uh, And Evan? I am Evan Ross Katz on all social media platforms. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Anthony, for being my wonderful guest co-host. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.